Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is Predetermination Through Education. In this episode, we're going to discuss the black image and the different ways white supremacy has created a false narrative of the concept of criminals. From the punishments convicted people deserve to the frequent overrepresentation of black and brown people as the main offenders. We're also going over, as the clever name of the episode implies, the school to prison pipeline. This is another contemporary episode, so there will be more social commentary than history today. First of all, I worded something wrong last episode. I said that Texas, Georgia, and Alabama don't pay their inmates at all. What I should have said is that they don't legally have to pay their inmates at all. Because honestly, I don't know the ways of every single prison in those states. I haven't found any new information out about it. I just thought that I would put that out there for clarification's sake. Anywho, another thing before we get into today, in honor of giving credit where credit is due, while refreshing my memory on the subject for the podcast, I came across this wonderful article on none other than Google Scholar. It's called Education or Incarceration, Zero Tolerance Policies and the School-to-Prison Pipeline. It's by Nancy A. Heitzig, and it was published in 2009. So it might be a little outdated, but Heitzig literally hits so many of the same topics that we will be discussing today and in a little more detail than we will go into. So if you have a chance or are interested in reading it for yourself, this past Wednesday, Elisa actually posted a link to the article on her Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and she so thorough. She also linked it in our show notes as well, so you can check it out there if you'd like. That being said, let's get started. The first thing I want to do is discuss something that was a theme of last week and expand upon it a bit. How does the media's portrayal of criminals and black people play into the school-to-prison pipeline? To quote the 13th Amendment, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Um, Ren, uh, you read that last week? Yes, I know, imaginary person. I think we should name them, because they sure do talk a lot. Dang, you're right. What should we name them? Let's go with Mo. Okay, yeah, Mo. Well, thank you, Mo, for pointing that out. Yes, I did read that quote last week. And guess why? Because it's still relevant to what we're talking about, and in a pretty major way. So, in the 13th Amendment loophole, we see this idea of criminals still legally being allowed to basically be slaves. Okay, so then we see people like Nixon, who really amplified and weaponized this during the war on drugs, like we talked about last week. Of course, people have been associating black people to crime for a long time before Nixon. Even take the heaping pile of garbage that was the film The Birth of a Nation. In that movie, every black character was depicted terribly. And along with making black characters seem unintelligent and helpless, they also portrayed them to be shifty and filled with ill intent. They were all predators and villains. Along with that, we know that white people definitely fell for this false narrative ingrained in them about black people being overly violent and prone to criminal activity because of their response and fears regarding desegregation. Not only was there a general disdain for equality among races, but also they consistently would bring up the concept that black people would somehow bring crime with them wherever they went. So, if black people started living in their neighborhoods, 
crime rates would skyrocket, and life as they knew it would disappear. And then there were things like white flight, which we will surely talk about at some point in the future. But to give a little indication about what white flight is, it's basically how we got suburbs. Once black people started moving into the inner cities where all the middle class white people lived, white people were like, ah, oh no, we gotta run because white fear and stuff. And so then they would just move to the outskirts of the inner cities and make little suburban towns. But I bring that up because another thing that white flight did was when all those scaredy cat white people left, they also took their money and businesses with them, which would lead to the inner city's budget being wicked low and things like school becoming seriously underfunded. And that's relevant to what we're talking about because then the inner cities became overwhelmingly lower income areas with a disproportionately high population of people of color. So why is that important? Well, because low-income areas are routinely over-policed and therefore are known as having higher rates of crime. So the racist white people are all like, see, that's what happens in black neighborhoods. And it's like, no, what happened was you took all your freaking money with you and you're too busy trying to confirm your own bias to see what's really happening. But that's not just isolated to the fear of desegregation. It's in literally everything. And that absolutely translates into today's media. The average person may remain quite unaware of what most everyday crimes actually look like. And the reason for that is obvious. Why would media spend time reporting on everyday crimes when it's not engaging for their audience? News outlets, whether they're being consumed online or on TV or even read in the newspaper, all of them are aiming to make content that isn't necessarily centered around informing their audience, but rather entertaining them as that is how their businesses are profitable. So, because of this, we are trained to think that only the worst of the worst kinds of people are branded with the evil title of criminal. And it's not just the news. There are countless shows about the worst cases of everything. There's a show called Criminal Minds, and I am not saying that's a bad show. I myself happen to really enjoy it, but its main theme is showing sociopaths and psychopaths who are beyond evil in every single episode. So, of course, many people hold merciless biases against those who have committed crimes. That is what we have been trained to believe. And that's not to say that all legal actions, even the ones that do not come anywhere close to the dramatic depictions we see all the time, should be without penalty. But certainly there should be a definite distinction between them and the punishment that is received for minor offenses. I know that's more of an opinion, so let's go back to the topic. Anyway, so people like Nixon, he didn't create the stigma on black people. All he did was capitalize on it, and he tapped into the well-established bias people had lying dormant in them. especially when it comes to further intertwining the public notions of criminals to black people. Because what Nixon did was essentially take the word criminal and replace the word black people with it. But this is something that transcends just one political party. Yeah, that's right. You know I'm not about to let Democrats act all innocent. Because the only way to 
make a progressive candidate electable to the general public is if they were strict on the justice system. That is, up until the last few election cycles. And I mean, my gosh, Nixon and Reagan really were out here. But you know something? We have all heard the term used of someone being tough on crime. I mean, that has been a staple in politics for years. And few presidents did more damage with stances of being tough on crime, like President Clinton. That man seriously brought some major damage with the criminal justice system reforms he enacted while in office. And I think that says a lot. The biases and fears that people hold against criminals are so strong that it is something found in both sides of the two main political parties. So that is a very useful tool for those who want to maintain white supremacy. This image of black people in the public's mind, and more pointedly in the white mind, is ever present at all ages for black people. So it most definitely goes into play for schools. And with that, let's go ahead and switch gears and bring up the school-to-prison pipeline. Now, you might be wondering what that is. Well, essentially, it's this phenomenon of schools basically grooming their students for a life of crime. One thing that proves to be a continuous contributor to the school-to-prison pipeline is the enforcement of zero-tolerance policies. Zero-tolerance policies are when a school serves discipline through practices that mandate often very strict consequences, like suspending or expelling students, in an effort to deter further types of student misbehavior regardless of the situations or reasoning for the behavior. Um, Ren, uh, shouldn't all students be held accountable and be punished if they misbehave in school? Isn't that something that promotes the general safety of all students? It does, Mo, yes. Thank you for bringing that up, friend. So yeah, it makes sense for students to be punished to some degree for bad behavior. But the thing is, the point of a zero-tolerance policy is that all disobedient behavior might be met with serious punishment. So that leads to students being severely punished for very small acts of disobedience. Kids have gotten expelled for shooting rubber bands. I mean, these can get really intense really quick. There was an incident in 2008 in Florida of an 11-year-old girl who was tased after it was reported she had pushed another student. She had also allegedly hit a deputy in the face, and that resulted in her getting charged with assault and battery in resisting with violence, which got her sent to juvie. This is merely one example of this type of occurrence. Should the girl have been punished? Yes, she harmed another student and disrupted the learning process of herself as well as her classmates. That being said, what this 11-year-old child needed was intervention of a trusted and well-trained school counselor. She was 11, and many children at that age struggle with behavior, especially if their home is lacking stability and or structure, which is common for children who display violent tendencies. But this is something that happens, literal children being prosecuted with legal actions instead of receiving the proper emotional support and involvement of a professional who can properly handle these types of situations. A huge issue with zero tolerance policies 
is how often they lead to an overabundance of the use of the justice system. And see, that's a big reoccurring issue in low-income schools. Having a ton of police officers in the school, but not enough counselors. And here's the thing, while school funding is trash, especially in low-income areas, there still can often be an insane amount of money being put into keeping police officers in the school and paying for metal detectors and other such things to try and deter bad behavior among students. Why this is such a sad fact is, in many ways, obvious, but I think for me at least, what sticks out the most as to why it's disturbing how much money goes into the attempts at preventing bad behavior is not just that these tactics are wildly ineffective, which is true, they're not. It's that the school is showing their kids that they care more about keeping them in line with harsh and ineffective policies that lead to severe punishment rather than spending that same money and energy on other departments in school. They could put money into after-school programs. They could pay for more counseling professionals. There are literally so many other things they could do. And furthermore, what's crazy is, I actually read this for the first time in that article I mentioned before by Heitzig, is that these tactics that are being used, like metal detectors and security cameras, were actually tactics that were inspired by school shootings, which happened in suburban schools, but instead they were implemented in low-income areas. And one thing that's interesting about that is that those were policies that did not have low-income school districts in mind when the idea was conceived. This is problematic because it's how equity falls through the cracks. It can be productive to think outside the box and apply alternative strategies in different environments, but you can't assume they will provide the same outcome. When we see this large inequality within lower income areas whose populations are composed disproportionately of black and brown people, using ideas geared toward protecting children who live significantly different day-to-day -day lives will not lead to effective outcomes. And now that we're on the subject of suburban and higher income areas, let's compare some stuff really quick. So in lower income schools, it is often made to seem that they have more behavioral problems and misconduct. But of course it seems that way. Lower income schools are often plagued by over-policing and police involvement in situations where such harsh actions are not needed just like lower-income neighborhoods. In higher-income schools, students will receive a slap on the wrist or maybe a detention. They would never face charges at age 11 of an escalated incident that was all started by pushing another student. And that carries out into their world outside of school as well. One thing we have brought up is that drugs are used at pretty much the same rate throughout most all communities. The same can be said about certain types of crime as well. The only difference is that there is far, far, far more leeway in the system for people who come from wealthier backgrounds. They can pay for bail, they can afford a lawyer, and they also have societal biases on their side. A kid who comes from a respectable background, people will say, they just made a mistake. They are a one-time offender. If you look at their record, it's squeaky clean. They're so young and have their whole life ahead of them. Why should it be ruined by something so small? Whereas, on the other hand, people coming from a less societally acceptable background will face unfair scrutiny. People will say it's just all they're ever going to be. Someone who stays outside of the law. If you show them mercy now, you're only delaying the inevitable. And that's exactly how they're treated from as early as their school years 
like little criminals in the making. It doesn't take much to see why treating young people like that is a problem. How is one meant to feel as if they are worthy of a stable lifestyle or a career outside of crime if they are constantly told they are not capable of it? They hear that rhetoric in schools. They hear it every time they turn on the news. Black and brown people are branded with names like thugs and criminals and shown in handcuffs day in and day out. And with this effect only growing more and more prevalent, handcuffs are quite literally the new shackles. Zero tolerance policies force an unattainable need to be perfect, or else they could risk a trip to juvie for playing with a rubber band. Let's also bring up another issue here learning disabilities. So many lower-income students fall behind in classes because of their undiagnosed learning disabilities, and that is partly because they may not have resources or the money that goes into getting officially tested for such things. But even very common struggles people have, like ADHD and dyslexia, can be easy to notice for a teacher who is able to know their students well. But see, with the large class sizes that many lower income schools have, what often happens is instead of connecting that their student might have problems reading because of a processing issue, their teacher is more prone to assume that they aren't putting enough time into reading practice. And instead of seeing that their students may be struggling to behave and pay attention in classes because they might have ADHD, they assume that they aren't getting enough attention at home and are just a poorly behaved child. Do you see what's happening here? Those two disorders, ADHD and dyslexia, not only are they very common, but with intervention and accommodations, they're very treatable as well. So instead of recommending that their parents get them tested, they just assume the worst because of these deeply instilled racial notions they may hold about the attitudes of their students. And keep in mind, this type of thing is very common in schools where there is a large amount of white teachers interacting with students of color without even purposely doing so. White teachers might take their students as having an attitude or being disruptive in class because of their own internalized biases. But one thing we certainly don't want to do is oversell the fault of the teachers here. Many teachers truly do have their students' best interest at heart. Few people would choose to be a teacher unless they were passionate about it because of how severely underpaid they are. So, even if they do everything they can for their students, they still have a whole school system that might be designed against them. Not only do the schools treat their students like young criminals, but often in order to keep their scores up and avoid budget cuts, they will try and push problematic students through instead of holding them back a year when they are struggling academically. And by doing so, they doom many children into not being properly prepared for college when the time comes. Even so, you might be inclined to believe that the school system is this evil, bad, oppressive thing. But if you'll notice, I said they would do so in order to avoid budget cuts. Because instead of raising a school's budget when the school is underperforming, they can be even more underfunded as a result. 
Which of course makes literally no sense. Why would you take money away from a school that is underperforming because they don't have enough money to provide proper resources for learning? But that is a constant thing in schools. Under no circumstances should an entire school be treated like future criminals. School is meant to be a place where everyone is provided with the same level of education. It shouldn't matter what kind of home life they have or if they have behavioral problems that need to be addressed through proper forms of education. But instead, when schools are treated like basically Juvie 2.0, it just aids into creating a very unhealthy environment for the minds of young and impressionable children. And in these schools, we see so many kids dropping out or getting kicked out of school, facing serious charges before they're even old enough to vote. And even if they stay in school, they may still face insurmountable challenges due to the schools being afraid of getting low testing scores and losing funding. With all this horrible stuff going on, I think the natural next question is, who stands to gain anything from a system that operates as dysfunctional as this. In all honesty, this system actually works as efficiently as it is meant to work for certain people. Private prisons are a booming industry. Why wouldn't people who profit off of them want to see something like this? With something like the school-to-prison pipeline, that is just one more way of ensuring that they never go out of business. They have all the money-driven incentive in the world to keep prisons and their pockets full. And that is where we're going to end today's lecture. We're going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Elisa's Blank Walls. Are your walls boring and drab? Do you find yourself surrounded by the never-ending abyss of a blank wall? Well then, you and Elisa share a common enemy. Like any small creator, Elisa understands the importance of supporting other small creators. That's why she would love to fill her walls with the creations of other talented artists. If you also support small businesses and believe that your walls can be better than any museum, consider donating to Elisa and Ren's Ko-Fi, which can be found on any of their social media. Elisa's Blank Walls her wallet might be empty, but her walls don't have to be. All right, we're back. Hey, Lisa, what kind of tea are you having? Coincidentally enough, it's the exact tea that you're having. Oh, dang. Oh, dip. Donkey Doug. <laughs> Donkey Doug. <laughs> yeah, so we are actually drinking the same tea today. My tea, which is your tea. <laughs> is called Huang Jingui, which we've had before, but guess what? We're going to tell you again <laughs> what it is. Uh, Huang Jingui is from China, and it is a class of oolong tea. It's on the greener spectrum of oolong teas. Absolutely lovely and gorgeous. We're on our second steeping, actually, today. We also have it paired with a little amount of ginger to bring out some brightness. This is a really fresh batch, so she she hits different for sure. Yeah, I could definitely taste a lot more of the savory creaminess from this fresh batch. I think that's how we can really tell that our last batch from when we last were able to buy tea. <laughs> she was getting up there. Yeah. <laughs> and age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Lisa, who's uh, who are you listening to these days? 
I'm so glad you asked. Um, my artist. I mean, I ask every week. I know. <laughs> and I'm always glad you do. Me too. My artist this week is Rebecca Black. And yes, this is the Rebecca Black whose song Friday went viral. She is still creating music and it's really good. She came across my Discover Weekly on Spotify a few months ago and I was blown away. She also recently came out as queer and uses her platform to promote different causes. Definitely give her another chance. It's great to see someone take the attention from so much hate, just so, so much hate, and turn it around to promote goodness. The song I'm going to recommend is Do You. Check it out. I promise you won't be disappointed. So, who's your artist, Ren? Me? Well, let me tell you. My artist this week is a band named Moonchild. I love this band so much. They incorporate amazing layered jazz segments in their songs, and it creates this excited yet mellow vibe. And that's actually another thing that I love about them. Their style offers this perfect balance between being groovy while still being relaxed. The song that I'm actually recommending this week by them is Wise Woman. And listen, dog, I love the instrumental in that song so much. On top of creating incredible music, they also are some pretty strong and reliable allies to the Black Lives Matter movement. So please go show them some love, give their music a listen, you won't regret it. But I guess I'll move right on to the activists of the week. Our activist for this week is Ashton Moda. In 2018, he was the public face of a campaign in Massachusetts which aimed to uphold a state law that offered protection for transgender people. He shared his own experiences as an individual who grew up as a black and Latinx trans man while also having to navigate the insanely confusing world that is high school, and in his case, a private high school. At the school, he faced challenges playing on the school's basketball team, and he also had to fight for his right to be referred to by his preferred name. He uses his platform today to advocate for people of color in the LGBTQ community. He also serves as a wonderful example of how important it is to remember that each person of color and LGBTQ person carries their own unique story with them. There is never going to just be one way to be a black transgender person in the world. The experiences that each individual goes through are all different and so are their stories. And all of those different stories should be met with celebration and appreciation. So thank you, Ashton, for the great work you do. Keep on doing your amazing self and using your voice to bring awareness to others. And now that we've brought up the topic of Massachusetts law, our news this week is that Ed Markey was re-elected for Senate in the Massachusetts primaries this past Tuesday. And this was an important election for a few reasons. First, he was up against Joe Kennedy, and the Kennedys have a long legacy of political dominance in Massachusetts. This is actually the first time a Kennedy has lost an election there. But this is also notable because Joe Kennedy is the younger candidate. And one thing I've been hearing more and more is that older candidates need to be voted out. I agree 100% that this country does have a problem in that area. People retain offices for a long time, and they fail to uphold new ideals, especially in areas of social reform. But 
We shouldn't be ageist or overcorrect and potentially do more damage to our causes. The reason why young voters can feel comfortable voting for people like Markey is because he has not failed to hear and represent us, and that is, I believe, the heart of this stance. Proper representation of current societal standards and a willingness to grow and learn as new information comes out. Basically, the ability to truly be progressive and representative, and in most cases, this is absolutely something we find in younger candidates, but not always. We have to find the balance between challenging the status quo while also keeping people in office who fight for and with us. My freaking gosh. Yes. <laughs> we love you, Marky. Also, as excited as you were before about the merch launch that we had on Redbubble last week, guess what? There's more. And they are super freaking cute alisa has done it again y'all the <laughs> cutest patterns on the face of this earth please go look at them you don't even have to have listened to a second of this show to love it you should go check them out and there's definitely something for everyone in these patterns i think one of my favorites is rin's bubble tea witchery and it's so cute while rin is giving me credit in these patterns she did hand draw some of the icons that I used for them. So you're not just seeing my art. You're going to get a chance to see hers too. Yeah, I, I did. I did do some art. I put some art on paper. So <laughs> I think that turned out all right. All right. I think that is pretty much it for this week. As for next week's episode, you're going to have to listen and find out what we talk about. <laughs> While we don't actually have a topic for next week, we always are posting on social media. When I say we, I do mean Alisa. <laughs> Alisa will be posting all week long and you will find out pretty soon what we're doing for next week. So stay tuned and, you know, maybe follow us places. <laughs> Get the insider look. All right. So that's it. Thanks for tuning in and bye.